We normally talk for about 10 minutes before we actually get into anything. Yeah, it's a lot. What's a lot? You don't think 10 minutes of just jibber-jabber? No, I need 10 minutes of jibber-jabber because I need to have something to stick on the front of the podcast. (laughs) Hello, you're listening to Brazil Nuts. An insane journey through the world of Brazilian politics, with your host Larissa Peixoto, political scientist, and Garrett Davis, a man who has never been to North Carolina. Coming up on this episode, we're talking about Wallace Souza and the documentary about him on Netflix called Killer Ratings. Please remember to rate and review us wherever you rate and review things. Maybe you're on Netflix and you're like, oh, no, I just accidentally watched an Adam Sandler movie, now my recommendations are going to go to shit. So, Hubie Halloween, you'll get no thumbs from me, but what does get all my thumbs is Brazil Nuts. It's a podcast. You'd probably like it. Why does Adam Sandler keep doing that voice? By the way, Hubie Halloween is the movie that Adam Sandler decided to follow up Uncut Gems with. I'm not saying he needs to fire his agent. I'm just saying he needs to fire his agent. Thank you for listening. Did I tell you that I watched an episode of Coronation Street the other day? This would be like for the first time in maybe 10 years. It it would probably be 10 years because when my daughter was very young, very, very young, she would not sleep at all whatsoever. hey When I mean wouldn't sleep, I mean it was as if sleep and her were mortal enemies. Yeah, but she also didn't cry, right? She just didn't want to sleep. She was being cute and ab- adorable and wanting to play. Yes, yes, all the goddamn Yeah, that's why time. I said the hey yo. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was me as well. We're part of the same cute, adorable club. As in, you're both monsters who haunt me on a daily basis, you mean? Yeah, sure. <laughs> oh my god, you looked so angry right now because I said that babies that don't sleep and want to play are cute and adorable. No, they're not. <laughs> they have sprung forth from Hades. <laughs> The only way we could, uh, like, legitimately get her to sleep, the only way that actually worked, was if I put her in a pram, rocked her back and forth, and played the Coronation Street theme music over and over and over and over again, until finally she would drop off. Did you, did you try car rides? Yes. I tried everything. Horse tranquilizers. Nothing worked. <laughs> Okay, everyone, he's kidding. He did not give his child horse tranquilizers. And then I gave her a can opener and a tin (laughs) can and just said, try and open this without actually instructing her on how to do it. (laughs) My grandmother would put like as thick as a finger is amount of wine in my aunt's bottle with milk. Mm -hmm. She'd fill it up with milk and just you know, half an inch, less even, of wine to get my aunt to sleep. Mm. And she's the one who used to run the adult video store, is that right? Or <laughs> No, she was the choir teacher and pianist. She also liked to, to crochet. 
She was adorable. She had two glasses of wine, and in half an hour, she was asleep. It, the the effects of that behavioral therapy my grandmother put into her as a baby lasted throughout her life. This was 1934. Okay. Times were tougher then, obviously. <laughs> yeah. You know, for a start, I mean, Coronation Street was only just starting out. <laughs> So you put her in a pram and you play the Coronation Street theme song over and over and over again. And eventually she would sleep and I'd be so tired. I'd be so just physically bone tired by that point that I had no energy other than to do anything but sit on the sofa and watch Coronation Street for like half an hour or however long the episode lasted. So I actually ended up watching a lot of Coronation Street when my daughter was... Didn't you just play the theme song from, like, YouTube or something? No. No, what I would do is I would tape episodes of Coronation Street. Oh, my God. What? You tape them? Well, DVR'd them. I'm not a hundred years old, for Christ's sake. Okay, then. What I would do is I would set up the Betamax, get that (laughs) ready to go, pop in an old blank cassette, and away we go. No, so I would DVR, like, an episode... Or three of Coronation Street a week. I would just play the theme music, rewind, play the theme music, rewind, play the theme music, rewind, play the theme music. You are a good father. I mean, not really, because if I could have got a steady supply of horse tranquilizers, it would have been that instead. And you judge my grandma. But it's difficult in Swansea to get a hold of those things. If I was living in the Cotswolds, probably not be an issue. (laughs) There's very few stables around here, it turns out. So, you were watching Coronation Street this yeah. week. No, I was just saying that I watched Coronation Street for the first time in probably, you know, X amount of years. Like a long, long, long time. And there was a storyline where a woman was possibly in some sort of financial difficulty. And she was worried about going back to jail... And then she either had an anxiety attack or a heart attack at the end of the episode. Very, very clear, this. Yeah. I see you paid a lot of attention to it. Well, no, I did pay a lot of attention to it. My problem is that this is all I could gather from half an hour of watching Coronation Street. That's it. That's (laughs) the only thing I could work out what was going on at all. So, what I'm saying is if anybody out there wants to, like, catch me up and fill me in on all of this... (laughs) Just so I don't have the question running around in my head from this point onwards, I would be very grateful. I can't believe they cancelled the MASH report, though, for being too left-wing. That pissed me off. I mean, I doubt they would have cancelled it for being too left-wing. I think that might have been a bit of the old stoking of the fire from the Daily Mail, perhaps. I think they probably cancelled the MASH report because nobody watched it, really. I watched it from... Twitter videos? Exactly. The majority of people watched it from Twitter videos. Does anybody still watch regularly scheduled television? I do have a friend. She and her boyfriend have an alarm set for... This is for a cable TV show. It's for inmates who have girlfriends on the outside. I guess not necessarily just girlfriends. They They could be women inmates who have partners on the outside, and then they come out of jail. It's co- called something like Love Behind Bars or something. 
And it's so ludicrous that they make a point out of watching it and they have an alarm set on their phones so they don't miss it. So I guess, I guess some people watch regularly scheduled TV. Speaking about love behind bars, what are we talking about today? <laughs> okay, so you nagged me until I caved. Yes. For us to watch the show Killer Ratings on Netflix. Yes, and the reason for that, I am a sucker for <laughs> true crime documentaries on Netflix. I love them. I can't get enough of them. Yeah, I would be... I think calling it a documentary is a little far-fetched. It's a little much. It's like very much, you know, let's make this very dramatic. But yeah, it's a docu-series on Wallace Souza. Mm-hmm. Who I'm going to refer to as Wallace Souza. How hard it is to say Souza. You're right. It's very difficult. Thank you for noticing that. <laughs> and he was a state deputy in Amazonas. The Amazon state. Not Amazon. The Amazon is the rainforest. <laughs> the state is Amazonas. Mm-hmm. You can tell it's called Amazonas. Do you know how you can tell it's called Amazonas? Because at one point during the documentary, they filmed the outside of the state building. And it says on there, in big letters, probably 20 feet high letters, Amazonas. And do you know what the subtitle comes up with? Amazon. Amazon State Building. I know. I watched it with English subtitles to see how bad the translation was going to get. How bad did it get, first things first? So the worst of it, I think, is mostly not translating the way people talk. Mm -hmm. And some of it is kind of impossible. Because when you're dealing with the police and judiciary branch community of Brazil, they have a very particular way of talking that is very hard to translate to English because English is a is a language that whether you're being very formal or whether you're being very informal, you're bound to say the same words in the same way. Not in Portuguese. In Portuguese, you can try to sound fancy. And people trying to sound fancy usually sound like idiots. And that was very hard to come across in the subtitles because when you translate that, it's just regular translation. So... Who, out of the cast of characters that we were introduced to, which of those people were trying to sound fancy? All of them. All of them? Almost all of them. Okay. Because they were being filmed, so they were trying to be on their best behavior. Uh-huh. So okay. they were trying to speak like they were very cultured and very educated. Uh-huh. Then you have the people like the wife of the main witness, the wife of Moa. Mm-hmm. She was more, you know, she spoke a little bit more true to what I guess she speaks in real life. Mm -hmm. She sounded more natural. Yeah. That's, that's what I guess I'm going with this. If you talk to these people in Portuguese and you can understand what they're saying in Portuguese, you see it's very robotic and it's very unnatural. It's a very unnatural way of putting words together. Mm. When you translate it, there's only a couple ways that you can get that across in English and it doesn't that doesn't really get across that sort of a natural way of putting the words together 
Okay. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. True. So, just to put this into context, we should probably talk about chronologically what the documentary talks about and so on. So, it starts with a, I guess you would call it, examination of this television show called... Canal Livre. That's exactly what I was going to (laughs) say. Hosted by a chap named Wallace Souza. And then it talks about that for a bit, about how that became a very popular TV show in Manaus and the state of Amazonas. And then it turns out that a man is arrested by the name of... Moa. Yep, again, exactly how I would have pronounced it. (laughs) And Moa then starts talking about how the host of this TV show, Wallace Souza, is actually a criminal kingpin responsible for drug trafficking and so on. And so the documentary then charts the investigation into Wallace based on this man's testimony. Oh, you say charts, but you know. Well, it kind of does. You're giving it way too much credit. It kind (laughs) of tries to chart while jumbling the whole thing up and being more selective of the evidence than the prosecutors were. Which, look, right, honestly, to be fair, is quite the accomplishment, considering right? how, how selective these prosecutors were when it came to presenting evidence. Because they, they had a hard time linking stuff together. It's because they didn't actually have any evidence, really, at all, whatsoever. They had a lot of testimony. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of circumstantial evidence, and they had they a did. lot of testimony. They had a couple of spent bullets, and mm-hmm. they linked that together and went, here's the case. Again, going back to the Lula episode previously, what the prosecutors did is they turned up and went, well, we can't prove this, but that just shows how guilty. Wallace is of these crimes because we can't prove it. I rest my case. Thank you very much. I'm a Brazilian prosecutor. You just reminded me of something the prosecutor in Lula's case said that I forgot to mention last week, which Hmm. was, we can't prove it, but we have conviction. (laughs) We can't prove it, but we're almost definitely sure it happened. Yeah, however, in the case against Lula, they were sure just because they really wanted to be. In the case against Wallace, I mean, you have witnesses who come forward, they talk, they die. That happens quite a lot, doesn't it? That's the thing. Yeah. You have a lot of weird coincidences. So a lot of it is based on the fact that you have these killings that are used for his TV show to, you know, bump up his ratings and go, look at how insane crime is here in Manaus. And he gets there, his crew gets there before the police does. He is tipped off for about the crimes before anyone is and anyone else is. And you, you they don't have a good enough explanation as to how they find out about the crimes, about all these murders. But that's not uncommon, though, is it? The police should not be tipping them off. No, but they do. But they do. 
unless a killer really wants to be on television, why would they call a TV station and go, hey, there's a dead body over there? Mm. Some of them were pretty well hidden. There was no reason they would know. So then you have the unexplained bunny. You have the bullets that match to certain crime scenes. It is a lot of unexplained loose ends for both sides. But the thing that strikes me about the documentary, and we will expand on this, but the thing that strikes me about the documentary more than anything else is that what happens is, is that the prosecutors will turn up and go, well, obviously what happened is X, Y, and Z. And you go, well, it's A, it's not that obvious, and B, you've presented nothing to support that claim whatsoever. And then somebody from the Wallace camp will go, oh, but no, what it actually means is X, Y, and Z. And yet also present no evidence to support that claim whatsoever. So ultimately, you're left none the wiser. And that's that, I think, is a major issue with this documentary in particular. But I don't think it's just the documentary's fault. I think it's also the fault of the case itself. Yes, yeah. I think the documentary needed to highlight the fact that neither side had evidence because mm. they left it to, they went, oh, look, they don't have any evidence to the prosecution. And when they went to the defense side, either the lawyers or Wallace's teary-eyed son or whoever. He's so sad. He's so he's sad so all sad. the time. He's so sad all the time. <laughs> it's just they take their statements as fact. Yeah, exactly. For the documentary. While they yeah. don't take the prosecution statements as fact. Yeah. What I find that also, it, what, what is really problematic is that the Brazilian justice system, the Brazilian police, I mean, they suck. They are truly terrible. Mm -hmm. But part of why they're truly terrible is that forensic work is not a thing. Actual investigations, detective work laboratories th those things don't exist here you hmm. don't actually have detectives that are trained to investigate and properly interrogate witnesses and record those interrogations and find credible people and and all that stuff what you have is people who just ask random questions they instigate witnesses to speak whatever they want them to say Torture is very much a thing. I mean, once we were having we we're having some construction done in our house, and one of the construction workers came to work, but he was badly injured. And we later find found out that it was because a military police officer heard his partner screaming because he was hitting her. And this military police officer was a woman. So she came in, arrested him, took him to her precinct, put him in a room and beat him up mm. and then released him. It's very much like the story that Giselle Vaz tells about yeah. working at... Canal Livre. It means free channel. Okay, good. So that's Canal... Livre. Livre. It's an affiliate station to SBT, which is one of our major media conglomerates. So do you remember from the Isaac episode, the entertainer, the variety TV show host who ran for Who wants money? Who wants money? Yeah, he owns it. Yeah. Okay, good. Super okay, Santos. right, fine. So the free channel, her time at that... She gives the statement 
about how Wallace would insert himself in the middle of police investigations, find a suspect, and then put a bag over their head, essentially, and cut off their oxygen until they were ready to confess to whatever crime the police and Wallace deemed fit for them. Yeah, she was one of the most credible witnesses, and they spent no time in her with her. And none whatsoever at and all. She doesn't seem to have been a witness for the prosecution. She was. She did, however, go into the witness protection program. Did she? She did. I'm not surprised, considering that all the other witnesses ended up dead. Yeah. So she, she her life was threatened after she came forward. Mm. So she was she was put under police protection. Here's the thing, though, right? If you're making this documentary, you would spend all your time with this woman. And in fact, even maybe potentially build the documentary around her, her life, what she's had to do, how she survived this long. Instead, what they do is they give her two minutes, and it, it's a structural issue that is problematic throughout the entire documentary because... They also have this horrible tendency to hand out information piecemeal, bit by bit, and lead you in one direction, even though that direction is null and void. The most obvious and blatant example of this is the bomb that blew up the police precinct. Yeah. Which Moa is put into custody after giving this statement, and he's kept at a federal jail. Yeah. Which then explodes. Yeah. And everybody freaks out, because... Generally speaking, even in Manaus, buildings don't explode all that often. Everybody is convinced, and they interview several talking heads, which are all like, oh yeah, well, it was totally, totally (laughs) to silence Moa, right? That's exactly the reason why it was. And they run with this. The documentary runs with this. for It's like like 15 minutes. No, no, it's not. It's longer. It's so much longer than that. It is? Yeah, well, the bomb exploding happens at the end of episode two. Right. And it's not until, like, maybe five minutes before the end of episode three, where they're like, oh, BT dubs? What happened was, there's some illegal fishing going on in the area where people are just dropping explosives into, like, rivers just to make the fish float to the top. You know how that goes. People used to do it with dynamite back in the day. But that got a bit scary because, you know... Dynamite's not exactly stable and it'll blow your arm off if you get it wrong. But what they were doing is they're doing that and some, like, Keystone Cop lab technician was, like, poking a stick (laughs) into one of these bombs and it exploded. That's what happened. Yep. Told you. No forensics. But they knew that when they made the documentary. And so rather than frame it as, this thing happened, it scared the shit out of Moa. And so that's why Moa changed his story 16 times during <laughs> during his incarceration. Rather yeah. than frame it as that, they just go, oh yeah, so what happened is they tried to kill him by blowing up a building, which isn't what happened. But they didn't actually do it. And and that's one problem. And I think that's why we have, we're having a problem with using the documentary's chronology to tell the story, to, to critique the documentary and tell the story is because it's all jumbled up. Mm. So we don't know by watching the documentary when Moa told one story and when did he tell another and when did he tell another. 
we just get lost in when so when did Giselle Vaz come forward was mm -hmm. it before or after something else happened so because they put things sort of outside of context they don't do the sort of linear you know this happened and this happened and this happened so it gets really jumbled exactly there's a thread that runs through this documentary about the death of a man known as Bebeto yeah. who who was the second in command the son of a very powerful drug lord in the area and the documentary frames it as this man was killed and suspicion fell on Wallace and his son Raphael if you asked me genuinely when this happened in the Wait. timeline i would have no idea i could not tell you even though they showed that awful picture of Bebeto dead in his car. Dozens of times. Shot 15 times or whatever he is. An absolute mess of a human being. Even though they've shown that at least, as you said, a dozen times. As to when that happens in the series of events that this documentary covers, I don't know. I don't know if it happens at the beginning. I don't know if it happens at the end. I assume it's before Raphael goes to prison, because otherwise he couldn't have shot him. But up until that point, I don't know. And it's it's one of the things that they use to give themselves conviction, but they spend very little time on the actual murder that they're being tried for. Because the thing mm. is, they have zero evidence for most of the murders that they believe Wallace is linked to. They mm -hmm. have evidence to one. Yeah. Which is a and guy they introduce literally two minutes before they talk about yeah. the case. And there's drug trafficking and witness tampering. Those are basically the charges. But when it comes to the gruesome murders that we're all forced to see, it's one and they never really talk about it. Nope. Exactly. So they talk about all the political rivals that might be doing this to Wallace. They bring in uh, your man from... Kwadi. Th thank you. Thank you. That's exactly how I was going to pronounce it as well. So they bring in an entire pedophile ring that From did nowhere, go to jail. That has nothing to do with anything at they all. They do not mention that Wallace C. Souza's brother is the vice mayor, the deputy mayor of Manaus, and is also arrested for drug trafficking. Which you think would be relevant, wouldn't you? Yeah. So... It is really a big mess and to actually create a timeline. So I went to one of the biggest newspapers in Brazil and just looked through their archive. So I went and did a search to just sort of see a little bit of the timeline. And it's a bit confusing because Wallace Souza is not that of an uncommon name. Mm. And that's actually how I found out that, you know, the deputy mayor of Manaus it was his brother and also arrested for drug trafficking. So you have all of this actually happening in kind of a straight line. You have things kind of building. You know, you have Moa gets arrested. He points the finger at Wallace. To be honest, not sure why, if it was such a risk to his life. I still don't know why he did it, but okay, he did it. Then they start to try and build that case against him. He died before he could go to trial. 
Wallace did. His son did go to jail. He is the only one out of the only three that they managed to indict. So they only managed to indict three people. Only his son went to jail. So, I mean, it is a mess of a case in terms of how it was built. Uh, one of the judges was, uh, her life was threatened. So somebody said her life was being threatened. And... When they said they would pour salt on the judge. Yeah, that is kind of a famous sort of way of saying stuff here. Like, you pour salt when you don't want anything to grow. Mm -hmm. What they said was, is that in one of my favorite bits of the entire documentary is that, yeah, so what happened was, is that Raphael passes the colonel a note saying we need to pour salt on this judge. Cool. Did they ever find the note? No. No, no because that's not how criminals work. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. So how do you know about this note? <laughs> well, isn't that a follow-up question that you would ask? And isn't that what you would wait for the answer for? Okay, so Wallace Souza was accused of creating this militia to kill alleged criminals to bump up the ratings for his crime TV show, which was set in... Manaus, the capital of Amazonas. Now, for people who haven't, stop now, go listen to our episode on the state of Amazonas. The Amazon state. So you can get a little context on the state. Then you come back and you listen to this episode. So yeah, that is the gist of it. He died before he went to trial. He never testified. He always maintained his innocence and that he was a crime fighter, not a criminal. Mm. And the documentary on Netflix that deals with this story, that's called Killer Ratings in English. Yes. And what's it called in Portuguese? So if they had translated it literally, it would be Criminals on TV. Mm -hmm. But what's it actually say? In Portuguese. Bandidos na TV. <laughs> yeah, I love that title. I love that title. <laughs> That's such a better Why? title than Killer Ratings. Because at the beginning of each episode, because there are seven episodes of this thing, by the way, some of the episodes easier to get through than the others. And at the beginning of each episode, it comes up Banditos on TV, which is amazing. Yeah, but it's a D. It's a D. So it's Bandidos. Yeah, Banditos. <laughs> Yeah, so the accent for people in the north, it's a little bit more slow-paced. So I actually watched it in 1.25 speed. <laughs> <laughs> in part because I just wanted to get through it, but also because you don't really notice that they're sped up. No. It's like they're speaking at a normal speed. Yeah. For me, anyway. Because my accent, the accent here where I live, is known, we're known for talking really fast. So, just out of curiosity, if good manners had been set in the north of Brazil. <laughs> it would have taken 45 minutes extra. <laughs> okay, alright, good. Because that's what that movie needed, honestly. It needed 45 more minutes tagged onto it. <laughs> okay, so we start... Talking about Wallace, you know, they show him growing and starting his TV show 
and he used to be a military police. Now, I've wanted to do an episode on how the police system in Brazil works for since we started, but we never have time and we're always doing something like, oh, this happened this week, so we should talk about that or something that gives context to that, even if it's not super topical. So I end up never doing that episode. So what you're saying is, though, Brazil needs to calm the fuck down for like two <laughs> or three weeks just so we can pump this out and then it can go back to being mental, right? Yeah. Okay, fine. One of the reasons Brazil is so mental is its police forces. We have two police forces. One is called the military police, one is called the civil police. The military police does not deal with the military and it is not a part of the armed forces. Now, where did the federal police fit into this as well? So, these are this is about jurisdiction. So, the okay. federal police is a type of civil police. So, the military police is just military in style. Mm-hmm. So, they have, you know, the patent, and they call themselves sergeant and lieutenant, and they have the uniform, and they salute. It's ridiculous. But they're not a part of the armed forces. Okay. So, they're just military in style, and then they have the name military, but they're not military. Mm-hmm. But they are, the their jurisdiction is the state. The civil police as well, their jurisdiction is the state. So, each state has their military and their civil police, and then the federal police their jurisdiction is the country. Okay, all right. And so, basically, the federal police are the FBI. Yeah. And the federal police, it's going to have, like, headquarters in each capital and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There are federal branches of... There are federal... Ju- the judiciary, of the federal judiciary in each capital. So, it is capitalized throughout the country. Mm-hmm. But they're all referred to as police, aren't they? That's the confusing yeah. part of it. Yeah. Oh, and there's also the highway police. You have different polices for different things. So the problem with the military and the civil police is that they kind of overlap a little bit. So when you're walking out and you're going to see police on the street, you're not going to see civil police. You're going to see military police. Mm -hmm. So they are the ones who take care of that day-to-day policing. When you dial our emergency number which is 190, you're going to get the military police. You're not going to get the civil police. The civil police are the detectives. They do the investigation. They have the forensics, whatever very little forensics we have here. It's truly ridiculous. So that's how they kind of divide the tasks. However, if you have the number, the special precinct to deal with women's issues, that is a civil police station. So if you have the number for that and you're trying to call the police for a domestic violence case, you can call that instead of calling 190 Hmm. and say, I need immediate help. And they might send police officers there. So you do get a bit of overlap in that sense. So that's why when you're watching killer ratings, you're going to see military police being mentioned. You're going to see civil police as the investigators. And you're going to see the federal police being brought in. The civil police are the ones investigating Wallace Souza. Souza. See, I did it because of you. Or you did it because you know I'm right deep down. You're not right. You know I am, though, deep down. Idiot. So the military police are the ones that go up the favelas to chase down drug dealers and murder them in cold blood. 
whether they are drug dealers or not, alleged drug dealers. Mm -hmm. And they are the ones that set up militias and murder squads to murder alleged criminals who may have gotten away. And this is like common knowledge. We all know that the police does this. Often they are either active members of the police, but there's also a lot of retired members of the police who are part of these murder squads. So they get some sort of tip-off. Oh, this guy got away. Got away as in there was not enough evidence against this person, so they go and murder them. Jesus. Yeah. Which is, again, jumping ahead very quickly, what Colonel Acre yeah. was being accused of. Yeah. Being the head That's of. why I'm mentioning it. Yeah, right. That's okay. why I'm bringing this up. Okay, right. Good. I'm glad you did that because that was a confusing part of the documentary for me. Because in regards to this documentary itself, there are a lot of elements that they don't bother explaining at all <laughs> whatsoever. They just go, oh, okay, so this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And there's a lot of stuff they spend way too long explaining that doesn't need an explanation that lasts 45 minutes at all. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote down some stuff that I thought was poorly explained. One thing that I thought was poorly translated was silencing witnesses. So they translated that because they said what we call and they translated it as silencing witnesses. So that's not what they said. They said an expression which is burning files. So that's the expression in Portuguese, when you right. kill someone with information. So I thought it was weird. So that was to mention, you know, something in the subtitles that jumped out at me. So that is the expression in Portuguese for those linguistic nerds and translation nerds. Big fans of this podcast. We, have, we, <laughs> we are massive in the translation nerd community. Another word that they used was galera. So we do have a word for gang. is gangue. Yeah. <laughs> Galera just means a cool group of people. And it's a specific slang for gang in Amazonas. Okay. In other parts of the country, Galera is just going to mean, you know, your friends. I'm going out with my friends, with my Galera. Yeah. Yeah. So, parliamentary immunity was something that I thought might have confused people. Well, it didn't confuse me, but it didn't confuse me because we did last week's episode. If we hadn't have done last week's episode, I probably <laughs> would have been lost. To the point where they just casually mention halfway through, oh, well, obviously he's not going to get arrested because he has parliamentary immunity. Does he? Okay. Then why have we been talking about investigating him for the past three hours then? Yeah, and it's it is a way... It is something that I think the documentary did really badly in trying to be impartial. And that's the problem with yeah. excessive, oh yeah, excessive attempts at impartiality. Like this guy was not distraught that he was going to lose his parliamentary immunity and his, you know, deputies, state deputy seat because it was just such a blow to him and his innocence, he was desperate because if he lost parliamentary immunity, they could go at him full force. He could be arrested. He could be tried. Hmm. That was his fear. Yeah. People were being very innocent there, very naive, or just very stupid. And trying to go 
about it saying, oh, he was just distraught. He was feeling humiliated. And by the way, that's something else. We don't use impeached for a legislative member who loses his seat. The mm. official term is something else. Enguavered? No. Enmangoed? No. Enbananaed? Oh, Jesus. So the official term is casar, which just means lose the seat. That's how I would translate. I'll never translate as impeached because that just means something else. So yeah, that to me was why he was so terrified. He was losing his entire persona. Yeah, he was pissed at that. But in that moment of losing his political office, it was because he was going to be arrested. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that becomes clear, but that only becomes clear after the fact, if that makes sense. That only becomes clear in the documentary after he gets arrested. Oh, no, actually, it becomes clear at the point where they go, well, you know what, we're going to raid his house. But we can't raid his house because of parliamentary immunity. What we can do is we can raid Raphael's house, which happens to be Wallace Sousa's house. And so that's what they go and do, kind of thing. But they take so long in getting there. That's actually a major flaw in this documentary, is that you don't get a impartial talking head who is willing to go, okay, this was nonsense, this was actually made sense and is the real truth, this is somewhere in between. You don't get that in talk. And they never actually said no one at any point, no talking head, no narrator at any point actually went, Oh, he was terrified of losing his political office because then he would be arrested. No, exactly. Yeah. They leave a lot of that on the editing floor in the sense that there's they never establish a motive for anything happening at all. They don't. I mean, they don't. What happens is, is that they go, okay, so then this happened. Yeah. And Wallace was very sad about this. And then this happened. And then Wallace Sousa, the modern-day Jesus Christ, who's come <laughs> to save us from all our sins, he thought that was ridiculous, and then this happened. Cut to his son crying. <laughs> his son crying, I mean, really, give that kid an Oscar. And talking about him. his father by name instead yeah. of my father. They wanted to kill Wallace Sousa. You know what that is, don't you? That's a classic negotiator's tactic, where if yeah. somebody's holding somebody hostage, you refer to the hostage by their first name to humanize them. Yeah. He's doing that constantly throughout this. It's also something that people who are really famous do to dissociate their personal lives with their, their fame and their, uh, like Lula does that sometimes. He talks about himself in the third person, which is kind of stupid but i've seen other people who are really really famous do it the rock does it yeah because it's a separation of who i am as a famous person who you all get to throw shit at and who i am in my personal life mm. wallace Souza was not that famous <laughs> and his no. kid much less i mean this was 2009 i don't remember this okay i'm not a news junkie i i don't watch fantastical which was the show that they showed, like, oh, that was when he made the national news. I don't watch that. It's like a kind of news, kind of variety show that's on Sunday night. And I don't remember this. I don't remember this making the news. No one in my family remembers this making the news. So they're mm. like, oh, 
It traveled the world. Everyone knew. And yeah, we are a little oblivious to to news from other states because we get a lot of our own and we get a lot from Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro and Brasília. But still, you ask me, like, over the few days that I was watching it, you were like, but what are you what are you thinking? What are you thinking? I'm like, yeah, this is the kind of thing that happens here. Mm, yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't shocking to me. But here's the thing, that's also the problem I have with it as well, is that it wasn't shocking to me. And it's not necessarily because we've done this podcast now for what feels like too long. Hey! It's that the way that story is told, it completely devalues the shock aspects of it. The strongest part of this series is the story of the prison riot at the end of the seventh episode, because that is genuinely chilling and genuinely heartbreaking and genuinely disturbing. And yeah. they spend maybe five to ten minutes on that. And it's very well done. But also as well, I don't know why it's happening. I have no idea why it's happening at all whatsoever. Something about the family from the north and something about the PCC, who I yeah. don't know and who have never been mentioned before. <laughs> so they added that in and they really had no reason to in my opinion they wanted to and that's when moa dies yeah that's why they added that in they didn't have to they could have just said and moa died in the riots on day such and such now that riot yeah that one we know about everyone knows about it so the PCC is the first capital command. It is the biggest criminal organization in the country. Right, okay. Their lawyer is now a Supreme Court justice. Really? Yeah. Cool. See, that's an interesting story that I would like to hear more about. If only there was a podcast that I could listen to that could possibly delve into that story a little deeper. Oh my god. Maybe one that concentrates on... Brazil-specific topics. Talking about the PCC. Oh, that's, I, I'm exhausted just thinking about it. <laughs> but, I mean, that's my point. My point is is that is that they casually mention that, oh, yeah, so there was a war between the family in the north and the PCC, and it led to this terrible riot where people were basically butchered to death at the side of a prison wall, and Moa died in that riot, which I agree. They didn't have to show that at all, but they did because it's... The shock value. It's the shock value, exactly, absolutely. And one other thing that they relied on shock value for is the deaths that Wallace covered and the families that he helped, the people he helped in his show, but they never looked into the human cost of the people he killed. Exactly. That's exactly going to be my point. They were like, oh, look at all the people who are crying. And they interviewed the people who were like, oh, it doesn't matter. Whatever he did, he helped us. And now he's gone. And he Such was an a lovely man. Such and I'm a like, lovely yeah, man. Yeah, there's nobody to talk against him. No, exactly. He killed everyone. He killed exactly. all of them. And well, allegedly killed all allegedly, of them. Allegedly, yeah, because he died before the court yeah. case. And I want to be clear. There's... In the first episode, they talk about how he went against the system. Wallace Souza was the system, first and foremost. Let's just get that out of the way. He was a military police officer. He had a, his own TV show. He had connections in the police. If this was Twitter, 
then <laughs> there would be a reply almost instantly that says, yes, drag him queen. <laughs> yeah, it would be from you. He was a state deputy. He was the system. He was not fighting against the system. He had political enemies, sure, what politician doesn't. But he was the system. Okay, that is the first thing. The second thing, there are no good guys on this docuseries. There's no good guys in this story. There is nobody to root for. Exactly, absolutely that. That's another thing that I was going to say. The problem with this is, is that what you end up with is villains versus villains. And I'll be honest with you, I could not give a shit who wins in that regards. I don't care. I don't care. I just don't want any more people to die from this absolute nonsense. But, realistically, it's the police who kill people versus gangsters who kill people. And there is a vicious cycle that creates the people who are the quote-unquote gangsters. So that barbaric way that people are dying in the north of Brazil, in the northeast of Brazil, which actually has officially the highest murder rates in the country, that comes from this huge inequality, this mm -hmm. huge lack of access to income, consumer goods, education, infrastructure. And then you add to that that you have access to the possibility of at least a few of those things when you have an illegal trade of drugs. Now, if Brazil legalized drugs and changed its police force system, then you're going to have a little different access to those things. I mean, what you're talking, though, is crazy talk because... <laughs> Because we both know that legalizing drugs and changing the nature of the police force would be completely fine and everything would work out okay. And we don't want that at all. There is a scene where Wallace has a bunch of alleged seedlings for marijuana. He's like, look! Weed seeds. Weed seeds! Weed seeds! Look at all these seeds! And I'm like, oh my god, pot seeds! Run for the hills! Dude, you are not this dumb. You are not this naive. And you are not this idiotic. And you look at all of them. The, the one person over there that I would never, ever, ever want to be in a room with. I mean, everyone with a gun. But one of the people who most disgusted me was his defense lawyer. <gasps> He's amazing, though. He's fantastic. That guy is so shady. And so creepy. And, and you want to sum up Brazil in a few seconds. There's this tiny little moment in the last episode where he goes, that was a humiliation to submit a deputy to a trial by the people. And I was like, wow, this really is the worst of Brazil in a TV show for the world to see. Because, yeah, these are people, when you take the police, especially the civil and the federal police, you take lawyers, any lawyers, and you take politicians. These are people who think that they're above the people. They think that they are, that it's okay to murder someone for ratings. So in my mind, looking at their evidence, like the, the most credible witness, they spent like two minutes on her for the whole series. And the whole case. Giselle Vaz. 
She is, she was on for two minutes in the last episode. She's the most credible witness of them all. And spoke the most eloquently with the least amount of hyperbole possible. She was just like, yeah, so I worked on his TV show and basically a lot of shady shit happened. That's it. And I tried as much as I could not to be a party to it. And I was afraid for my life. And I quit when, as soon as I could. And of course I didn't talk. I was afraid for my life. Yeah. But then the police threatened to arrest me. So I really had no choice in the matter. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here right now having this conversation with you, if I'm honest. Brilliant. She was fantastic, and they literally spent two minutes with her out of seven hours worth of footage. And not just them. The entire case didn't use her, apparently. It didn't seem like they used her on the witness stand. Moa kept being the main witness, and then he recanted in front of the judge. So... Here's one of the things that infuriated me about this documentary, is the way it's designed and the way it's framed, is that it's obviously, achingly, trying to be something like capturing the Freedmans, or trying to be something like making a murderer, where you spend the entire time watching it going, oh, he's totally guilty. Oh, wait, no, he's totally innocent. Oh, no, he's totally guilty. Oh no, wait, no, he's totally innocent. But it's not at all. It never achieves that. All it achieves is making me confused and annoyed by the fact that I'm not getting anybody I can trust telling me what's happening. Instead, what happens is you get a piece of evidence that's presented by, for want of a better word, the prosecution, either from the account of the federal police or from, say, a federal prosecutor or somebody like that. And they'll go, well, see, what happened was is that uh, (laughs) Wallace shot a man. No, 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 not Wallace. The deputado, the representative. That's how they put it in. That's right. That's true. Yeah, they constantly refer to him as the representative. Only spoke of him as the deputado. So the representative. Meanwhile, Sousa Jr. is like good old Wally. Yeah. And you've you'd notice them saying authority a lot. So that's how you talk about people in Brazil in a position of authority. So there is one moment that one of the lawyer guys will go about the riot. No authority had ever seen a riot like that. Like, yeah, no one had, you fucking moron. (laughs) I hate lawyers. hate Brazilian lawyers in particular. Anyway, yeah, so the issue is is that a perfect example of this would be that the, for want of a better word, the prosecution for this would say, what happened was is that Wallace instructed his son to go out and shoot this drug dealer 15 times to make his life easier in trafficking drugs. Not the drug dealer, obviously, he's dead. What I mean is... Wallace himself, yes. Yeah. The representative's career as a drug trafficker easier. And then he would send his crew out to film it in the morning. Right? Okay? Yeah. But they would take so long explaining that. They would take like 10 minutes or so just to explain that. And then what would happen is they'd bring in somebody else from Wallace's camp, generally speaking his son, who would deny it and then cry for about 20 minutes and say how this was... Impossible. This... Accusation was not only impossible, but also killing their father because of his ill health. 
And also, his broken heart. Yeah. That's what would happen. He had 250,000 reais in his safe. When right. that actually meant real money in 2009, right. that was almost $250,000. That would be the equivalent of $220,000. Well, here's the thing, right? The prosecution itself only has a couple of things that are actual pieces of evidence. The rest of it, they've just plucked out of the air entirely, absolutely. Because I don't really buy the idea, still now, that he was ordering assassinations on his rivals just so his television crew could go and film that. Yeah, I don't think so either. I no, think... I think that's bollocks, honestly. I think he had rivals, he had, you know, disaffections. <laughs> mm -hmm. He had people he wanted dead, mm -hmm. and he had them killed. And mm -hmm. he sometimes used that for the show. As content for his television show. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think he also had information he wasn't allowed to have from the military police. Yep. So he would maybe be around or help the police torture people and use that as well. Mm -hmm. But yeah, just killing for the show, I don't think he actually did because I don't think he had to. No, exactly. Absolutely. He didn't have to do that. I think he was party to planting drugs on people for for the police to find for the police not to find because they knew they they were planting the drugs themselves there was a case once that the police here in my state murdered two people and then dressed them as military police officers and tried to make them as first shooters the people who shot first and who were impersonating military police officers so i don't trust anything that a military police officer says in a, yeah. in a situation like that. No. I don't particularly trust anybody from the federal police either during no. this case. And the, the reason for this is, again, oh. they've only got a handful of pieces of evidence that are actually what you would consider to be evidence in any other court of law. I don't understand why they didn't wire anybody. Well, exactly. So... One piece of evidence they have is the safe in Wallace's bedroom, which contained an extortionate amount of money. The second piece of evidence they have is the locker in his son's room, which has a million guns. Spent bullets. Right. Spent bullets that they forensically matched, however, or ballistically matched, to Bullets that were used to shoot a known drug dealer. That was never mentioned again in the documentary. Well, this is my point. And the other piece of evidence they have is a piece of paper that was also found in his son's locker, which basically maps out the hierarchy of drug dealers in that area. Yeah, that they the police says that those were the list of killings. Mm -hmm. And the defense says that the lawyer was explaining the police evidence to the kid, and the kid kept, I say kid, the little murderer kept the piece of paper. The other piece of evidence they have on top of all of that is the fact that the lead witness for the prosecution, who actually turns out not to be the lead witness, but that's uh, Moa, he... Can't and recants. <laughs> he can't and recants, but consistently... Wallace Sousa denies knowing him. 
and says, oh, we happen to be at the same barbecue once, which is why there's a photo of us sitting next together in a pool. But I have no idea who this guy is. He's friends with my son. Not really a friend. More of an acquaintance. They go (laughs) to the same gym. And then it comes out that he likes works for him. People, everyone knows that they know each other. It doesn't even come out that they work for him because at no point did they pull employee records from the actual TV studio itself, which they could have done quite easily. At no point do they actually do any of that stuff. The only reason that they actually can nail these people knowing each other is they pulled Moa's phone records. And on Moa's phone records, he had contacted Wallace's number 20 times. You say employee records as if that's a thing we have? Shush. Doesn't matter. <laughs> no, but eventually, after they do the the phone records thing, a bunch of people go, oh, Moa was his security guard. Moa was always with him. And yeah. then a bunch of people confirm that they knew each other. Yeah, but Wallace never does. Wallace never admits no. it. Wallace always says, no, 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 this is a thing. Right? So that's my point. My point is, is that the scant amount of evidence that they have produced to be able to hang this charge on. However, the most damning piece of evidence in my eyes is the case of Frankenzino. 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 <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll do that again. The most damning piece of evidence in You're my keeping eyes, it. You're in, keeping the original way you said that. The most damning piece of evidence in my eyes is Frankie from the 20. Who, 40. The most damning piece of evidence in my eyes. Is it 40 or is it 14? There were two of them. There was one from the 14th and there was one from the 40. Oh, crap. Now I'm never going to know. Exactly. So, the most damning piece of evidence in my eyes is the guy whose name begins with Frank. Who? <laughs> Frankizinho, yes. Yeah. Who is renowned as being a known villain and has had many a brush with the law. Who claims that he is part of this association that Wallace has created. And, of course, everybody denies it and so on and so forth. But then, his attorney one day just turns up with a bunch of photos of Wallace and Frank meeting with each other over a table. You can just say Little Frank. Little Frank. Yeah, that is the literal translation. It's just, Inho is a diminutive in Portuguese. Okay, all right. So we'll call him Little Frank then. (laughs) And this is a major bombshell for the defense. It's something that they couldn't possibly explain away because ultimately this man should not be anywhere near the representative. So, up until this point, the format of this docuseries has been accusation and then eventually somebody from Wallace's camp will come along and explain it away with a bit of hand-wavy nonsense, right? (laughs) Okay? Yeah. That's the basic format of it. In this case, they end the third episode on this absolute bombshell, and then... Never talk about it again. Never mentioned again. Never mentioned again. And that's the issue with this, is that nobody makes a big deal out of the stuff that is genuinely shocking, and it's so desperately trying to make you feel that, oh, well, you know, I mean, it could be this or that, or, you know, there's more than one truth, that it never actually drills down to the important matters. It never actually drills down to the issues that it it raises. And what's worse is that it never actually gets to what the crime is and the impact the crime has had on society. 
and the impact, the human cost of what's happened to these people. They could have done something truly compelling in the there's more than one truth aspect. Instead of focusing on, you know, showing the pictures of him when he was dying, do something about how the whole system is broken. And like, mm. this is the evidence against this man. This is the system that claims to have, you know, the moral authority to judge him. These are the people who have been destroyed by the political and economic and legal system of this country and have now become completely lost in terms of a moral compass and just kill each other for pennies. This is what Brazil has become in certain places. So there are areas of Brazil that are just completely barbaric. And the farther away they are, because they are farther away from institutions, the scarier it is, because people have no direction. So you have no education system, you have no health system, and you have people like Wallace Souza who will give patronage in order to ensure a following. So he keeps people down by giving them the smallest things. So there's a scene of a guy crying, saying, oh, because I need tires. So I asked our sponsor, auto body shop, whatever, and they're going to give you those two tires. And the guy starts crying. How is that guy's life made any better? It isn't. To be fair, though, Wallace would have given him the 250000 he had in his safe. <laughs> locked in his bedroom. However, he needs that because he's saving it for his family in case there's a health emergency. As a state deputy, you never know. It's such mm. a tiny wage. Exactly. Absolutely. It's not like they have private health care. Or banks with which to deposit that money in. So there is an alarming number of shows like Wallace's, like crime shows. Like it's a cross between, and this is the only way I can describe it, which will make no sense to anybody mm. who doesn't live in the UK, but it's a cross between the one show and cops, right? It's a variety show. It's a light entertainment show where... Yeah. Just randomly, they'll just go, oh, by the way, somebody's been murdered. Let's go and look at the body for 10 minutes and then shout yeah, at the camera. It's a light variety show. So, you know, he had a puppet. That's my favorite bit, by the way. That's my absolute favorite bit. The bit in this show where the puppet starts annoying that handyman who works oh, for yeah. her. Oh, yeah. I start And he just loses that. his shit and starts tearing the staging away to get at the awesome. puppet. That is legitimately one of the funniest things I have ever seen. I cried laughing. It was <laughs> it's brilliant. It's absolutely So there's brilliant. actually a really famous puppet because there's a show on the largest network, Global, it's syndicated throughout the country, the show. Mm -hmm. With Ana Maria Braga and she has a parrot, Louro José, who's mm -hmm. always there with her. He's like her, you know, her sidekick. So the whole puppet thing is kind of common. Is a weird man in a mask going, oh, no, it's time no, for no, Wallace. No, that is not. Is, the, the, is that common as well? guy from American Horror Story in a gimp suit, yeah. that is not common. Okay, good. Okay, I was wondering. I was curious if that was a staple <laughs> of Brazilian television or no. not. Okay. 
So you have a middle-aged guy, middle-aged white guy, on TV going, the crime rate in this state is through the roof. And this happened and that happened and we're gonna show you and it's gruesome. So, you know, take the kids out of the... That, you have a lot of those guys. That was a great audition for that, by the way. <laughs> they like to run for office. They love uh -huh. to run for office on really, you know, strong anti-crime stances. Would they also be anti-corruption as well? Oh, yeah. Okay. Seeing as we know what that means now. Just hot air. Hot mm -hmm. freaking air. Yeah. So all of that is truly very common. Like, none of that was surprising. And then you have the patronage. And the patronage, both in politics and in TV, is really common. You know, abusing the poor for your own personal gain. And what makes this worse is that the TV show itself that Wallace Souza presented was nothing but the purest and vilest form of exploitation. It was. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is. It's horrific. And it's legitimately makes my skin crawl thinking about it. Except for the fact that they had that scene where the man destroyed the set to get <laughs> the puppet, which almost saves it. Almost saves it. Not quite. However, this documentary does exactly the same thing because it, it glosses over the fact that people have been shot and brutally murdered and Lil Frank's head was found in a suitcase that washed up on the river banks. And what they do is rather than like treat it as the absolute horror that it actually is, this documentary plays it for a cheap thrill by yeah. dramatizing it and creating a hook at the beginning of the season finale. It's ridiculous. They put kids playing soccer by the riverbank. Yeah. And to find the, the suitcase. But the patronage aspect of a TV show. And you have, you know, you have the lowest income people being exploited here. People who don't get anything. People who don't get government policies. People who don't get any attention. And so they finally get some attention. They finally feel like they are being seen and heard and loved. And it's very easy to miss the exploitation. Yeah. Bit because this guy, he's working and he needs two tires. That's what he sees. He doesn't see that he needs access to healthcare, that his kid needs access to education. He's not asking for his kid to go to school. He's asking for two tires so he yeah. can work, yeah. so he can feed his kid. Yeah. That's his perception. He's been oppressed for so long that his perception of what he needs is very immediate. And that's mm -hmm. what these kind of shows prey on. So there is a guy who keeps threatening to run for president, of course. Because why run for city councilor when you're one of the f most famous TV presenters in the country? And his name is Luciano Huck. He, of course, wants to run for a right-wing party. And his TV show is about that. He finds the poorest people he can, and he gives their house a coat of paint and a stove and a fridge, which they have to pay the electricity bill for, and just, you know, uses their tears for his ratings because yeah. they thank him and they cry. And, you know, that fridge is going to be empty. They may fill it up, you know, to show, and we the fridge is all filled up. And who's going to keep filling it? Who's going to pay for the bill for it? 
But then people cry and they love him. And then he goes and he says he understands what the poor need. This is the exact same thing with the man with the tires. Is that, again, as you said, Wallace is positioned by not only his family, but also by the staff who worked on the show as being a champion of the people. Yeah. That's what he is. He's a champion of the people because he's telling the truth about crime in the streets. And he also talked some sponsors into buying that poor man two bicycle tires. As if that would break the bank for Wallace. And you see the people around him, the people who supported him, the people who are crying in the docuseries for him. When you look at the pictures of them when they started working for him, they were all young, they were all really Mm -hmm. young, and they Mm -hmm. all looked really poor. And that's a tactic. They hire people who are vulnerable. They pluck them out of misery. And you have him going, oh, but a person comes to me and asks for a job and I'm going to say no? What are you going to say to their families, to their starving children? And they ask him, why is he, you know, having criminals on his payroll, ex-criminals? He's like, no, I just gave somebody a job. Well, you're so anti-crime. I mean, I am all for rehabilitation. I actually don't believe in prison for non-violent offenders. But he's not. That's the thing. He is on TV ranting and raving about how these criminals should be beaten to death. Yeah. That's a direct quote. That's what he he says. He actually loves crime. He supports it. He says it should happen because he wants criminals beaten to that death. Mm-hmm. And without crime, he wouldn't have had his career. Exactly. So at best, he was a criminal for inciting violence. But at worst, he did everything he did. I think it's the middle ground there. I think he did some of it. He didn't do all of it. And everyone sucks. Yeah, so the thing is, the documentary actually... It doesn't make me doubt that Wallace Sozo wasn't... A good person. I, I still think oh. he was a shit. I'm sure he's shady as fuck. I'm sure he was up to his neck in it. I don't think they yeah. were indicting a good man. No. I'm not sure he was indicted for things he actually did. I, I don't know. I I don't think it was political persecution because he wasn't actually pointing the finger at the system. He wasn't pointing the fi- the finger at political figures like the idea that he was you know opening the system up for everyone to see that is insane he wasn't no he would have been doing that if he was saying you know what if we legalize drug use and create health care and public policy for drug dependency and if we develop more community policing and if we develop basic infrastructure, then we're going to stop the police problem and the violence problem that we have here. Then he would be, you know, making, showing the issues that we have with policing and violence. He wasn't doing that. So, yeah, I think this documentary is a disservice, actually, to Brazil as a whole. I think... Netflix could do a lot for Brazilian culture because, as I've mentioned a bunch of times, we do have a media oligopoly which has hindered creation and creativity in Brazil. 
So the development of TV shows, of movies, those have all been stifled by the these four media conglomerates. I mean, Brazilian television has had the same pro basic programming since the late 60s, early 70s. Netflix could do so much investing in people who have amazing ideas and great scripts. I mean, they had this show about like angels as a bureaucracy and they canceled it. It was hilarious. I loved it. And they canceled it. There's 3%, which is pretty good. It's just ran its final season, but they could do more of that. Instead, no, they fund this, which shows the worst of Brazil without any need. People already knew this. Or without any direction either. And that's the, yeah. that's the issue that I have with it more than anything else is that I, I struggle to understand what the aim of this documentary is other than just exploiting a terrible aspect of a period of time in Manaus. Yeah. There's nothing else to it. There's nothing deeper to it than that. Especially because it doesn't show that it's more than just a period of time. It shows that this as a, as a, a moment in time in Manaus instead of a structural issue that these guys, you know, the individuals there that they're showing, they're archetypes. They're getting mm. replaced all the time. 30 years ago, there was some other guy who was the Wallace Souza, Souza, damn it, and who was the... Now you're starting to think like me. <laughs> oh, God. And who was the pedophile ring and who was the secretary of intelligence. These guys just keep, they just keep being replaced by other guys just like them. So if you're not doing the documentary to say that, if you're not doing the documentary to tell this story, but actually to tell the history, then your documentary is pointless and it doesn't help anyone. And that's what I think. Okay, on that note, we've talked for way too long about a documentary that goes on for way too long. So, let's wrap this up. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you to Larissa for agreeing to watch this documentary with me, even though she hated it. Thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us and helping us and for just letting us do what we do, which I'm not even sure what we do. You guys keep on helping us do it, and that's wonderful and brilliant, and you are amazing people. On that note, if you would like to continue to do so, please remember to like and subscribe and follow and all that good stuff. Where we at, yo? At BrazilNutsPod. Where we also at, yo? BrazilNutsPod.com. That's right. Be there or be a pear. A pear of what? No, I meant like the fruit. Oh, okay. I don't like pears. Above all else, remember to take care of yourselves and each other. Good night. God bless. Be brilliant. Bye. So. so <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Did you want to say so first? <laughs> no, you can say it first. No, I'm okay, because it sounds like you're not happy being relegated into second position. Oh my god. As far as so is concerned. <laughs> Go ahead. No, no, it's fine. If, if you've got a more important so than I have. I do not. 
Okay. Brazil Nuts is an effort by Larissa Peixoto and Garrett Davis. We'd like to thank Austin Zielinski for our graphic design. We'd also like to thank the essential workers for keeping us safe. And you, our listeners, you are brilliant and beautiful. Like a classic romance starring Humphrey Bogart. Classy, powerful, almost entirely plausible. Thank you for listening. She's too lazy to pick up the treat when she fall when it falls off her mouth. So am I, to be fair. <laughs> if you hand me like a cornetto <laughs> That's specific. A cornetto. Yeah, a cornetto and I put it in my mouth and then it falls out. It's gonna rest on my chest until somebody comes and picks it up and puts it back in my mouth, honestly. That's disgusting. It's gonna rest on my chest. Okay. Boom. Okay. And then I end up, if they stay there and nobody comes and picks it up, it ends up kind of, you know, just melting and then, you know, obviously going solidifying there. So I end up looking like, do you remember Madonna in the late 80s, early 90s when she had that cone bra thing going on? That cone bodice? If I've had two Cornettos, it looks like that, essentially. (laughs) Oh my god.